0: I am Lenny Tadelman, and I'm a geneticist and computational biologist by training at the graduate school in Berkeley and then postdoctoral research out at MIT. And since 2012, I have been the co founder and CEO of uh, protocols.io, which is a GitHub Wikipedia like central repository of research recipes So for science methods detailing what exactly scientists have done.
1: Welcome, Lenny. We first connected on Twitter through a tweet of yours, and I'm going to read it. It says, reminder, it's not your data. It's the patient's data. It's the taxpayer's data. It's the funder's data. And if you're in an industry or self-funded the research and don't publish, then you have the right not to share your data. Otherwise, it's not your data. So can you tell us a little bit more about your point of view, your ideas about data ownership, and what inspired you to tweet out your value statement?
0: (laughs) Thank you, Cindy. So this is something that comes up periodically, more so particularly in the past 5-10 years in the research community as different funders and publishers are paying more and more attention to reproducibility challenges and published research and put in guidelines and policies that encourage or require the sharing of data as a prerequisite for publication or as a condition of getting funding. So we're seeing more and more of that. And I think the vast majority of the research community of the scientists are in favor of this. They understand that it's important. They understand that it's one of the pillars of science uh, to be able to reproduce and verify and validate other people's results and not just to take them at their word. And we don't make mistakes, right? But there is a minority that is upset about these kinds of requirements and i periodically either in person or someone on twitter will say hey i've spent so long sailing the oceans and collecting the data i don't want to just give it away uh, i want to spend the next five ten years publishing and it it's my data and so that's the part that i'm reacting to and there are some scientists that forget who is funding them and who actually has the rights to the data.
1: Why do they feel like it's their data rather than the patient's data or the taxpayer's data or the funder's data?
0: So it's understandable because particularly when when the data generation takes a long time. So imagine you're going on expeditions two, three months away from family, sampling bacteria in oceans or digging in the desert. And it can take a really long time to get the samples, to get the data. And you, you start to feel ownership. And it's also the career, your career, the more publications you get on a given data set, the stronger your resume, the higher the chances of getting fellowships faculty positions and so on, people become a little bit possessive and take ownership of the data I feel like put so much into it, it's mine.
1: Prior to digitalizing our data, who owned the data?
0: Well, I guess universities can also lay some claim to the intellectual property rights. So I'm not an attorney, so It's it's tricky. Mm-hmm. But I think there was always the understanding in the science world that you should be able to provide the tables, the data sets that you publishing on request. But when we had paper journals, there, there really just wasn't space to make all of that available. And we're now in a different environment where we have repositories. There's GitHub for code. There are many repositories for the data to be shared. And so with the web, we're no longer in that contact author for details. And we're now in a, in, in, in a place where journals can say, if you want to publish in our journal, you have to make the data available. And there are some that have put in very stringent data requirement policies.
1: Who sets those parameters in terms of the kind of data you publish and and the stringency behind it? Do a bunch of academics come together, chairmen, scientists decide best practices or they vary from publication to publication?
0: Both. So it depends on the community. There are some communities, for example, the genomics community back when the human genome was being sequenced, uh, there were a lot of, uh, and even before that, there were a lot of meetings of the leaders in the field sort of agreeing on what are the best practices and depositing the DNA sequences in the central repository GenBank run by the uh, U.S. government became sort of expected in the community and from the journals. And so that really was community-led best practices. But more recently, I also see just funders putting out mandates. uh, And when you agree to getting funding, you're agreeing to the data sharing policies of the foundation. And same thing for journals. Now, journals, more and more of them are putting in statements requiring data, but it doesn't mean that they're necessarily enforcing it. So requirements are one thing, enforcement is another.
1: What is the difference between scientific academic research versus the science-based companies because a lot of, for instance, pharmaceuticals hire a lot of PhDs and they must have a close connection between one another.
0: So, so there is certainly overlap. You're right that I, I think in biomedicine particularly, most of the people who get PhDs actually don't stay in academia and then outside of it, not all of it is an in industry. They go they do. to a broad spectrum of uh, different careers, but a lot do end up in industry. There is some overlap where you will have industry funding uh, some of the research. So Novartis could give a grant to UC Berkeley or British Petroleum could be doing ecological research. And those tend to be very interesting because uh, there may be a push from the industry side to keep the data private. Like you can imagine tobacco companies sponsoring something so there's some conflict of interest and usually universities try to frame these in a way that gives the researchers the right to publish regardless of what the results are and to make it available so that the funder does not have a yay or nay vote. Mm-hmm. So those are those are on the collaborative side when there's some funding coming in from industry but in general there is basic science, There there is uh, academic Science and there is expectation there that you're publishing and making the results open. And then there is the industry side. And of course, I'm broadly generalizing. There are things you'll keep private in academia. There's competitiveness in academia as well. You're afraid of getting scooped. Uh, but broadly speaking, academia tends to publish and be very open. And the your reputation and your career prospects are really tied to your publications. And on the industry side, it's not so much about the publications as about the actual company bottom line and the vaccines, drug targets, right, molecules that you're discovering and those you're not necessarily sharing. So there's a lot of research that happens in industry. And my understanding is that the vast majority of it is actually not published.
1: I think even though they have different goals, the thread between all of them really is the data because regardless of what industry you're in, I hate this phrase, data is the new oil, but it's considered one of the most valuable assets around. I'm wondering, is there a philosophy around how much you share amongst scientists, regardless of the industry?
0: In, in academia, it tends to be all over the place. So I think in industry... They're very careful about the security. They're very, very concerned about uh, breach and somebody getting access to the trials, to the molecules they're considering. The, the competition is very intense and they take the intellectual property security very seriously. On the academic side, it really varies. And there are groups that even long before they're ready to publish, they're into open science, they generate data, they feel like we've done the sequencing of these species or of these tissues from patients and we're going to anonymize the patient names and release the information and the sequences and the data that we have. As soon as we've generated it, even before the story is finished, so other people can use it. There are some academic projects that are funded as resources where you are expected to share the data as they come online there might be requests
1: that you don't publish from the data before we did if we are the ones producing it so
0: there can be community standards but there are examples in academia many examples in academia where the data are shared instantly as they are produced even before publications and then you also have groups that are extremely secretive until they're ready to publish no one else has access to the data and sometimes even after they've published they try to prevent other people from getting access to the
1: data. So it's back to the possessiveness aspect of it.
0: Mm -hmm. My feeling just anecdotally from the 13 years that I was at the bench as a student postdoc is that the vast majority of scientists are open and are collaborative in academia and that it's a tiny minority that try to hoard the data but I'm sure that that does vary by field.
1: In the healthcare industry it's been shown that people try to anonymize data and release it for researchers to do research on. But then there are also a few security and privacy pros who have said that you can re-identify the anonymized data. Has there been a problem? Yes,
0: uh, th- this is something that comes up a lot in discussions. Everyone does when you're working with patient data. Everyone does go through a concerted effort to anonymize the information. But usually when people opt into participating in these studies and these types of projects, the disclaimers do warn the patients, do warn the people participating that, yes, we'll go through anonymizing steps, but it is possible to re-identify, as you said, de-anonymize the data and figure out who it really is, no matter how hard you try. So there are a lot of conversations in academia about this, and it is important to be very clear with patients about it. There are concerns, but I don't know actually of examples of people re-identifying for any kind of malicious purpose. There might be space and opportunity for doing that and the concern, I'm not saying that the concerns are not valid, but I don't know of examples where this has happened with genomic data, DNA sequencing of individuals.
1: What about Henrietta Lacks, where she was being treated for I can't remember what problem she had and then it was a that's, that's a
0: major, there's a book on this, right? There's yeah. a movie. That, that's a major fiasco and a learning opportunity for the research community where there was no consent.
1: Did you ever see this movie called Three Identical Strangers about triplets who found each other?
0: Uh, no, I haven't.
1: And then they found that... All three of those triplets were adopted and then they thought, hmm, that's really strange. So then they had a wonderful reunion and then later down the line, they realized that they're being used as a study. There are researchers that went in every single week to their homes, to the adoptees' homes to do research on the kids and knew that they're all brothers but neglected to tell the families until they found each other Mm. by chance. And then they realized they were part of a study and they refused to release the data. And so I just, I found the Henrietta Lacks and this new movie that came out just really fascinating. I mean, I guess that's why they have regulations so that you don't have things like these scenarios happen where you find out after you're an adult that you're part of a strange experiment
0: that's fascinating so i don't know this movie but on a related on a related note i'm thinking back i don't remember the names uh, but i'm thinking back of the recent serial killer that was identified not through his own dna being in a database but the relatives participating in. Uh, ancestry sequencing, right, submitting personal genomics, submitting their cells uh, for genotyping and the police having access, tracing the serial killer through that. There certainly are implications of the data that we are sharing. Uh, don't know what the biggest concerns are, but there are a lot of fascinating issues uh, that the scientific community, patients, and regulators have to grapple with.
1: So since you're a geneticist, what do you think about the latest DNA testing companies working with pharmaceuticals in potentially finding cures with a lot of privacy alarms coming up for advocates?
0: Yeah. So it, it has to be done. It has to be done ethically. You do have to think about these issues. My personal feeling is that there's a lot for world and humans to gain from sharing the DNA information or personal information. The positives outweigh the risks. That's a very vague statement. So I do, you know, I think about the opportunity to do studies where a drug is not just tested whether it works or not but depending on the dna of the people you can figure out what are the populations what are the types of individuals that will have adverse reactions to it who are the ones who are unlikely to benefit from it so there, there is such powerful opportunity for good use of this. Obviously, we can dismiss the privacy risks and the potential for abuse and misuse, but it would be a real shame if we just backed away from the research and from from the opportunity that this offers um, altogether, instead of carefully thinking through the implications and trying to do this in an ethical way.